This is the Ethics Lab Podcast, exploring the path from better knowledge to practical results in healthcare ethics. For those of us who've been in this field for a long time, we're standing on a two-legged stool, right? We've proven uh, the first leg that not just that better care is possible, but that much better care is possible. On Ethics Lab, we often look at specific clinical ethical issues, tough choice dilemmas that patients and clinicians are involved in. Today, however, we're taking a step back to look at the big picture. We're looking at an approach to patient care called whole person care. The questions that arise are, how should someone be treated? What is causing this approach of whole person care to emerge? What are some of the stories that demonstrate its impact? And what are the tools and practices that are most helpful and effective? Our guests today are two national experts in palliative care that will speak to us about whole person care. Dr. Ira Bayok, founder and chief medical officer at the Institute for Human Caring at Providence St. Joseph Health, and Dr. Mimi Pattison, medical director of palliative care at CHI Franciscan. My name is Kevin Murphy, and this is Ethics Lab. Doctors Bayok and, and Pattison, you both work in this discipline as doctors called palliative care. What is palliative care and what attracted you to this work? Palliative care is a team-based approach to care for patients with serious illness and their families. It involves professionals from multiple disciplines to address the multifactorial needs of patients and families as they live through serious illness. It seeks to alleviate suffering, but also to promote a sense of well-being in patients and families during this poignant time of life. Dr. Pattison, I've, I've been told that there is a criteria to kind of identify patients who might be appropriate for palliative care. And that question is, would you be surprised if someone died or passed away within the next calendar year? And if you were not surprised, they might be a good candidate for palliative care. That's a criteria that's used nationally. And I understand that originates from you. Am I correct on that? That is correct. We, just during a brainstorming session now nearly 20 years ago, as we were developing our first outpatient palliative care program, we had difficulty getting physicians to refer. And we came up with the question, well, would you be surprised if this person died in the next six months or 12 months? And actually, we'd been getting two or three referrals a week. And the day we first used the surprise question, we actually got 12 referrals. So we knew we'd sort of hit a gold mine, if you will, and it's gone on from there. Well, you've long been involved in, in palliative care. Can you, can you offer us your picture of what palliative care is and, and what attracted you to this work? You know, I, I like a short definition of palliative care, kind of the elevator speech, if you will. And I take that from Ira. And we teach in our palliative care academy that palliative care is the best care possible from the patient perspective, because everybody understands that. Another way to look at it is to say it's good health care for very sick people. Interestingly enough, when I was first starting our program way back in 2000, I was talking to a gastroenterology colleague and he said to me, you know, Mimi, what is palliative care? 
So I gave him kind of a big, long definition, and he looked at me with just a questioning look, and he said, well, isn't that just good medicine? And I said, yes, it is. But it it has gotten lost along the way. And, you know, many of us uh, fall into some of the work that we do backwards. Sometimes it's not intentional. But what what was your path into this work of palliative care? You know, my first involvement um, as a practicing uh, clinician, and initially that was as a nephrologist, I was very involved in ethics and in ethics consults. And as I look back on those years, those were palliative care consults. And virtually all of them were involving patients with very serious illness, families in great distress and conflict. And there was an incredible amount of suffering. And during that time, we saw the opportunity to participate in the first national collaborative on improving end-of-life care in 1997, and that opened the door for us. And Dr. Bayok, yourself, what what was the path that led you into uh, this work as well? I've been involved in this work in a very general way since my residency, to tell you the truth. I was in Fresno, California, thinking I was going to be a rural family doc. I was in a pretty demanding family medicine program that, you know, taught everything from uh, operative obstetrics to fracture management to intensive care to neonatology and all of it. What I found was that while this academic county hospital, we took really good care of, of people it seemed to be a a lapse or a sort of a lacuna in our attention when people were nearing the very end of life. And and that always seemed sort of wrong to me, both clinically and almost as a social justice lapse. So I started to just pay attention to why people were ending up in the emergency department waiting, you know, four and five hours to get their Tylenol with codeine refilled simply because they didn't know who their doctor was or being rushed to the emergency department. I remember one very poignant situation where a family rushed their dying elder man to the emergency department because they thought it was illegal to have him die at home. And just in developing a, a fledgling uh, hospice program, I saw just to, just to keep people from consequences and complications that were easily preventable, what I found was that not only were we able to prevent so much needless suffering, but every once in a while, we heard from a patient or their family that there was this sense of value, a sense of well-being that they were experiencing during these intensely difficult, sad times. And I thought to myself, boy, like if there's a potential for well-being somehow concomitant with the arduous nature of illness and dying, that's something that the universe is trying to teach me. Like, what's that about? You know, how, how can I understand that? And how can I make it happen more often? Now, your experiences in palliative care and your experiences with patients have uh, led us to our topic today, which is looking at whole person care. Can both of you kind of offer me and offer our listeners a picture of, of what whole person care is and and what it tries to impact. You know, whole person care is taking care of the entire human being, if you will, not just their physical needs or their illness diagnosis, but also their emotional needs, psychosocial needs, spiritual needs, 
and also the uh, care of their family is so important. So it's more than just the, the medical aspects, if you will. And that is what is so important and I think what got lost over time. Obviously, there are challenges in our healthcare systems, data that's coming out that uh, is letting us know we're not doing as well as we can. And perhaps that's one of the reasons why we're seeing approaches like whole person care. Absolutely. And there is, you know, plenty of data to tell us that we're not doing an adequate job in this realm certainly with patient satisfaction and just there's just a lot of data out there telling us that we have great opportunities to improve. Dr. Bayok, what what's some of your experience and some of the data that you're seeing that causes you as a physician to really consider an approach like whole person care and what it's trying to offer? There's so much to to be responded to, so many challenges we have in our healthcare system. You know, we have the most expensive healthcare system per capita in the world by far, and yet our outcomes are really mediocre. The, the American public, I think, doesn't understand that, that while we're spending sometimes twice as much as, as most developed countries, uh, you know, we have, I think when I last looked, we were 33rd in life expectancy. We are far more likely to spend the last days of our life in a hospital and even in an ICU, our family members are at risk of PTSD from the experiences of caring for loved ones through the end of life. We're spending so much money that medical bankruptcy is now a fairly common phenomenon in our society. And as you know, healthcare expenses are extracting so much money from families and communities and companies that, that we're challenged to complete the basic social responsibilities of education, fixing potholes in our, in our roads, and not to mention uh, being delayed in a 21st century information superhighway and all, mass transit and all of the stuff that we want to do for the well-being of ourselves, our communities, and, and sort of human flourishing. Why I came to whole person care is that having been at active at the beginning of palliative and hospice care in the United States, I knew that, uh, and I'm not the only one, many of us were aware that what we were trying to do was, as Mimi said, just good medicine. From my perspective, it was good family practice where I was very attentive you know, to the individual life cycle, to family systems and family life cycles. Now, you know, scroll forward, what, 40 plus years, and we know, you know, Dame Cicely created hospice care in the 1960s in the United Kingdom because she looked around and said, why, why are people dying so badly? And it seemed unnecessary. And so hospice came into existence. In, in the 1990s, a number of us, Mimi and myself and, and a number of leaders of hospice care uh, across the country looked around and said, well, hospice works brilliantly right? Takes better care of patients who are dying and their families. Why do people have to be dying to get it? <laughs> and, and we basically stood up this new specialty of palliative care. Now we have good data that palliative care improves the quality of life, the diminishes suffering, improves quality of life. Also, not, not insignificantly, can help people live a bit longer than they otherwise would and is associated with significant 
cost savings compared to care in its absence. What we have been doing through uh, our work at the Institute for Human Caring and Providence St. Joseph Health is basically asking the question, so palliative care works well, why do we require people to be seriously ill to get it? And we're taking the knowledge, attitudes, and skills of palliative care and trying to drive change through a healthcare system in a way that, as Dr. Patterson aptly said, pays attention to not just the physical problems of people, their diagnoses and need for treatment, their physical comfort, but also their emotional, interpersonal, social, and spiritual well-being. Uh, and that's what we're calling whole person caring. Dr. Patterson, are you having the same kind of an experience transition within your practice as well? You know, we are. And I would like to quote some additional information, actually, that comes to us from an Institute of Medicine study that was done just a, a few years ago. And this was for people who are seriously ill. But this, this group of patients, they ask, what are the most important things to you, you know, at this time in your life? And four different themes floated to the top. And the first one was maintaining independence. The second one was similar, but not being a burden. The third one was to have their symptoms managed. And the fourth one was living longer. And if you look at where the focus in medicine today is, it's living longer. And that's not what's most important to people. So we have tremendous opportunity to improve because right now, we just really have it backwards, particularly in care of persons with serious progressive illness. I just love to hear what Ira said and, and admire his work and what he's doing in trying to integrate whole person care into all of health care. It needs to be in all of health care. It can't just be relegated to palliative care or hospice care. Are there certain patient stories that come to mind that, that demonstrate kind of the impact of whole person care. And, and my assumption too is that the impact is not just for patients, but it's probably for caregivers as well. So the thought comes to mind about a patient, we'll call her Jean, that I was caring for in our hospice house. And she was in her late 30s and had a teenage son and was a single mother and was just extremely concerned about what was going to happen to her son. The father was not involved in his life. And during the time that she was here and she had a very complex pain problem was with us for a number of weeks, you know, we gradually got to see her move into a, a healing space, if you will. And we talk about how healing occurs. And just before she died, she looked at me and said, you know, it's okay, I'm okay. And that was a very different place than when she first came to us with all the support she had been given, her son had been given, and the, and the rest of her family. Her mother was still very involved. And that healing continued over the years because a few years later, I just happened to be, and this is the Holy Spirit guidance, happened to be at the team station when her son came back to see us. And I looked at him and he looked at me and said, do you remember me? And I said, I do. And he went on to tell me how well he was doing. He was now in a relationship. He was in school. 
and he really had done well. And I just thought, you know, she was so healed at the end of her life, and that continued into his life, into his young adulthood. Dr. Bayak, any stories come to mind for you? Oh, I, I have to go back to a personal story. My father's illness and dying impacted me in ways that I, it took me years to actually understand. When I was in my third year of residency, my father developed pancreatic cancer. I, I actually diagnosed him over the phone. I mean, I knew about it from a, from a phone call when he had developed painless jaundice. Over the year, he was doing pretty well, but we knew he was gradually losing weight and becoming more weak. He came out from New Jersey, where I w was raised and where my parents lived, to visit me and my wife uh, and his first granddaughter <laughs> in Fresno, California, where I was completing my residency. And he got off the plane and he was kind of, you know, I thought it was evening and we were under fluorescent lights in the airport. And I thought, well, he looks sallow. But in the next morning, it was clear he was jaundiced and that that had recurred. And we did some tests and clearly he had an obstructed bile duct from his pancreatic cancer. And he went to the hospital and he, well, we, uh, uh, the medical team there, my residency colleagues, drained the collection of bile, but he became septic and almost died that night. We gradually, he got better and we took him home to our home in, in Fresno and and then we had some serious conversations. Hospice was barely existent at the time, but I had been working to develop the program and, and created kind of an ad hoc hospice team around him, caring for his physical needs, his pain and his, you know, uh, cleanliness and, and elimination and all of that, but also uh, working to address his emotional needs and our own. And frankly, there, there's a, uh, I've written this story, it's the opening chapter in a, of a book called Dying Well, but I had this very poignant conversation with him. He had, he had uh, actually purchased uh, our family uh, one of the first VHS video recorders uh, because, you know, the, his grandchild was born and he wanted to get all of this on film. Um, but I set it up knowing we were going to have a really difficult conversation and, and pushed record. And he and I proceeded to talk and I asked him what he wanted that you're the boss dad. And you know, this cancer's now back. We can, we've pumped you full of antibiotics. I think that they're going to work for a while, but it's really clear given the, the trajectory of things that the, the course of your health over the last few months and now what's happened that we're approaching the last weeks of your life. And, you know, you know, I know you've wanted to be in the hospital when you die. You wanted to be back in New Jersey. And if that's what you want, I will, we'll make that happen. I'll travel with you. We'll, we'll, you know, get you on injectable antibiotics that we can provide and we'll get you there. But, you know, dad, mom who came out with him and my wife and I, we want to care for you right here in our home. And he, he looked at me and, and then looked away, kind of looked, looked past me. And, you know, once again, we were going to conduct business shoulder to shoulder as guys do, right? And after thinking for a while, he just kind of nodded his head in agreement. 
And I, I wanted to make sure I said, dad, are you, what are you saying? You'll, you'll stay here with us. And he, he again, sort of nodded in agreement. And I found myself weeping because I realized at that time that he got it, that he, where he was cared for and by whom and where he died was more important to us than it was to him. He, he was now pretty much beyond that level of caring, but he knew that it mattered a whole lot to us. So during the midst of what was really a tragic, deeply, deeply sad time in our lives, we came together as people do instinctively and weathered this storm together as a family. And in addition to the sadness, there was in fact this sense of celebration. What I mean by that, that we were exceedingly aware of how precious and intrinsically valuable each moment together we had was. And so we used the time to pamper him, to honor him, to to celebrate our lives and our relationships as family. And, you know, my dad, despite not wanting to be ill, not wanting to die and being at times physically uncomfortable, was clearly well within himself uh, during the time that I would consider him to be dying. That, for me, um, has, has really influenced my sense that in caring for the whole person, while our bodies have an outdate, if you will, our love sustains us and, and you know, survives the death of, of those we love, and that the capacity for human well-being persists even through the decline that leads to our death. Ira, the story of your father is a very moving story, and perhaps also it paints a picture of what whole person care is asking us to pay attention to. Dr. Pattison, what do you believe whole person care is asking us to pay attention to? Well, I think the most important question that we need to be asking, and again, this isn't taking care of people with serious illness, but needs to be integrated um, into all of healthcare is what is the patient story? And we have actually come up with um, a model of communication actually based on Dr. Tom Hutchinson's book, uh, Whole Person Care, and talking about healing and curing. And we've come up with a, a house model of communication. And the house model starts with basically the foundation of the house and relationship but the first supporting wall is the patient story. It's not our story because that's not what's most important. So we need to begin our conversation by asking the patient, you know, what is, what is important to them so that we can make medical recommendations. And we ask them specifically what they've heard about their conditions so that we have some sense of where they are. And where do they find their strength and support? And then asking how their illness is affecting their life. And then after we have gotten all this foundational material, then we ask them, you know, for permission to go on and talk about the medical story. And then we make a medical recommendation about ongoing care. We don't just give them a menu and have them 
select the options that they want. We make a medical recommendation, what we call it a balanced medical recommendation. It's based on their story, what's important to them, and the medical story. And I just think this is really a paradigm shift because in medicine, we tend to be telling machines. We go in and talk to the patients and families with all the information that we know. And we often think that we know best for what they want or should do. And we don't. So we have to pause and we have to get their story first. And it is so important that we get their story first. And then we go on to collaborate with them to make decisions for their ongoing care that include all of those things that are so important to them. And as the Institute of Medicine study told us, being independent and not being a burden and then getting sort of the medical issues cared for, the pain and symptom management, and then live longer, you know, if I can. Unfortunately, today, the the elegant story that Ira tells about his father, and thank you for sharing that, Ira. Our patients don't get a chance to experience that until very, very far advanced in their illness when they often see a, a palliative specialist for the first time and we, be, we begin to ask their patient's story. Ira, are there questions that you feel that whole person care, that approach, is asking that are a little bit different than questions that we've been raising in the past? So I think Dr. Pattison did a very good job just then of, of outlining the approach to seriously ill people. Uh, basically, in a conceptual way, we're trying to ask what matters most to you, not just what's a matter with you. And focusing on the person with the illness or, or Ill injury, not just the illness or injury. And that really is a frame shift. I want to get a little wonky here for a moment, though. In driving this frame shift to whole person care, we're, we're sort of moving from a transactional model of medicine where we're fixing problems to a longitudinal relational model of medicine where we're taking a stock of the person with, with a body, with health needs, but seeing them in their fullness, right? Seeing them as, as a, whole person. What we're trying to do, uh, and this is aspirational at, uh, at this moment, but we're making plans to do it, is to use the patient-reported outcome methodologies. It, it's called PRO, but it really should be patient-reported measures or PRM, using standard surveys and, and question items to broaden the scope of the clinical relationship or clinical encounters with people even though we may not be able to, to lengthen the, the, the duration of a clinic visit. So what I mean by that is <clears throat> we hope in the not too distant future, before anyone comes to an appointment with their doctor uh, uh, or nurse practitioner, uh, a primary care appointment or a specialty appointment, they will have an assignment, if you will, that it will become normal to have completed from home or in the waiting room, or perhaps in a kiosk, uh, a set of questions. And it starts with things like, you know, are you safe at home, right? Which we ask when people are in the hospital, but we want to know about these social determinants. Are you safe at home? Uh, uh, are you worried about your family and their well-being? Uh, are you getting enough to eat? Do you have access to a place to, you know, exercise? Are you, 
Are you having, do you have problems with transportation? And then to health, not just about how you're doing with your blood pressure or your, you know, your uh, glucose control if you're a diabetic, but how much energy do you have? How are you sleeping? Are you having problems with elimination? Do you have, are you having problems with incontinence, which is something that older adults uh, prioritize very, very high, but we rarely ask about. Uh, do you have, uh, are you having sexual concerns or problems? Something that when I was a family practice resident, I was told I was supposed to ask routinely, but of course never gets asked or rarely gets asked these days, even in, in health maintenance uh, visits. All of that stuff now, the, the, the technology exists in quite user-friendly ways to uh, embed the, these sorts of questions, as well as things like depression screening or anxiety screening, into the flow of a routine visit. And then by the time that you're sitting in front of the clinician, he or she can look at a screen, have analyzed, the, the computer systems will have analyzed your, your responses to these questions, and the provider will know whether there are priorities that really need to be attended to today, right? That begins to deliver the person from anonymity and allows us to attend not just to their diagnoses and needs for treatment, but to their physical function and, again, their emotional, interpersonal, and social well-being. That's the promise here, uh, I think, that we hope to fulfill with whole person care. If whole person care is, is more relational, then I'm assuming for clinicians, it's also for them more rewarding, more humanizing. It not only causes them to be a better clinician, but a better person. Would that be accurate? What's, what's been your experience around how whole person care has impacted you and your colleagues? You know, we have a two-day palliative care academy that we it's, it's basically a CME for practicing clinicians. And during that time, it really, the focus of the academy is on generalist palliative skills. We're certainly not trying to make experts. But when we teach them the very basics of communication skills, and as I said, the house model is our basic model of communication. First of all, people are amazed at how time efficient the model is and how much more information they get in a very short period of time, and how much easier it is once they've gotten the patient's story to be able to make that medical recommendation about their ongoing care. And there, we talk to our uh, clinicians in the academy about giving them skills that improves their sense of professional well-being and their professional life. And we're getting a lot of great feedback about that. They're feeling that they're having just a different relationship with their patients. And it is. It's all about relationships. Whole person care is the, the relationship. And so it'll, it impacts our patients, impacts us, impacts how we see others, and then especially how we see ourselves. It's just not fun to, to practice this transactional model of medicine. It, you just feel like a technician, you know, but as Dr. Patterson just said, when you start with the patient's story and you get a sense of who this person is, you can bring your whole self to the clinical encounter, right? You're in a relationship and, you know, it's important that we know what the boundaries are of that relationship, that we are there as their doctor, 
this is about them, not about us. We're, we're in a service profession. But once you understand the very basics of professional boundaries, uh, you can then, you know, uh, enjoy uh, knowing this person in a genuine relationship and hearing their stories, being able to share some of your own story, which is totally okay and does not violate boundaries. Being able, I, I'm a big one for kibitzing with patients. It's, I even use it as a diagnostic sort of tool. I want to see if I can get them to, um, to smile or to laugh along with me at something that, that is funny about our commonality of the human condition. Uh, practice is a lot less parched and just a lot more lively and fun when two people have respective roles but are meeting as two whole persons enjoying one another. That's the, that's the great promise or bright future of, of whole person care. And frankly, you know, we know that burnout now is endemic in American healthcare that, you know, what the last article I wrote, uh, I read was 54%, I think of American physicians reach formal burnout criteria. That's really dramatic. And we know that uh, substance abuse and and depression and even suicide is higher in, in the caring professions than than in the general public. That's really um, tragic and and has to stop. The 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 quest to have these genuine relationships with patients are what draw so many of our colleagues nowadays to concierge medicine, and it's what drew me and I would guess Mimi here to this great specialty of palliative care, along with so many of our colleagues, because we get to know the people we care for as whole persons. So it really sounds like in whole person care, you're, you're marrying the best of what technology can offer, but you're also marrying that with, with the best of what relationships can offer in relational learning. I think that's an excellent way of stating it, Kevin. And as Iris says it so well, we know the rates of burnout today. And now we have some technology, as Ira is describing, um, that the physician can have an answer to a lot of these questions, i.e. the patient's story, at the beginning of the encounter, and can spend more time on the relational aspects of the encounter. And it brings us back to our mission and purpose, and really why we entered medicine. But if I'm a, if I'm a physician, if I'm a, a patient, I want to learn more about whole person care, what resources, what tools might you offer? Where might you direct me to go? You know, I'll tell you a lot of our work and actually the development of the house model was inspired by Tom Hutchinson's book on whole person care. And I read that some time ago and I just reread it again. And um, it is it is just so deep and rich in talking about relationships and how important this is. So that is you know, that is one resource. And, and also beginning to use some uh, tools in communication, uh, some very basic tools like ask before you tell and respond to the emo and responding to the patient's emotions. We teach that in the house model. And I'm glad you're going to be actually posting that on the website because on the back of the laminated cards that we give out that have the house model, we have ways and words that work. So we actually have some clinical tips for physicians that we encourage them to use because we have found in our work and we have gotten feedback from our clinicians 
that indeed these tools are time efficient and also improve their professional satisfaction. Dr. Bayok, where might you direct us as well? There are a lot of great tools out there these days. I, I like the, Tom Hutchison's model and the book is excellent. I would refer people to the uh, Serious Illness Conversation Guide that's come out of Susan Block and Rochelle Bernacki's work with Atul Gawande at, at the what's called the Ariadne Labs in Boston. But the Serious Illness Conversation Guide is in the public domain. You can simply you know search for it and download it. And that's a nice eight category um, framework for having conversations with people who are obviously seriously ill to illuminate their uh, priorities and um, uh, their concerns and sort of to, to develop plan Bs, if you will, if things don't go well with life prolonging treatments. I'll immodestly put in a plug for my book, The Best Care Possible, which is a story-driven book uh, replete with real stories from um, my practice and program at Dartmouth and Dartmouth-Hitchcock Medical Center. It it really isn't rocket science. <laughs> it, it, it really is going back to uh, seeing oneself and experiencing oneself as a human being with special skills, but accompanying the other person through a circumstance that neither of you would wish. Given our conversation today, what are some of the biggest steps that you think will need to occur for us to systemically move forward in the direction that whole person care is calling us? Boy, I, I'll, I'll start with that. And I think we need an informed a public to demand higher quality in their care and relationship with their clinicians. There are so many changes in American medicine, and um, and I'm not at all sanguine about whether uh, we succeed. I do think we have a rich opportunity to drive change forward in a in a way that's highly satisfying for patients, families, and all of us who are providers. But I'm I am not at all sure that that we're going to get to fulfill those opportunities. The profit motive is is truly erosive. Because people understandably don't want to die and they don't want their loved ones to die, there is a tendency to grasp at treatments that have perhaps a slight and maybe diminishing chance of helping a person live longer, but carry significant burdens and, and risks. I think for those of us who've been in this field for a long time, uh, we're standing on a two-legged stool, right? We've proven. Uh, the first leg that not just that better care is possible, but that much better care is possible. The second leg is we've proven that much better care is affordable. In fact, it actually saves a, a modest amount of money, 15, in some studies, up to 30% in compared to care in its absence. What's been lacking is citizen and consumer demand for what palliative care represents and now what whole person care can provide. And without that citizen consumer demand, frankly, we don't, we'll never stand uh, high and, and reach our goals. Dr. Patterson, what's your thought on that question? The biggest barrier that I see in moving forward is the sense that this takes more time and it doesn't. It's time efficient to be able to do this, to have better relationships with patients, and ultimately, satisfaction will improve and costs will go down. 
If you had a new physician, new nurse, new clinician sitting in front of you now and saying, you know, I want to start something around whole person care. I want to, I want to learn more about it myself, or I want to start. Um, and they said, I'm coming to you because I understand you, you know, quite a bit about this. What, what would you say with it to them? How might they start? You know, I go back to the tools that we teach in our palliative care academy, and we encourage clinicians to focus on one tool at a time. And I think the most important tool is ask before you tell. And that's going to get you to the patient's story before you start giving them all the medical information that they may or may not want or may not even be important to them. So it would be beginning to ask before you tell in each encounter you have with the patient and then also responding to patient emotions. Patients judge your competency by whether you respond to emotions or not. That's very important to them. So I would encourage them to practice those two skills of ask before you tell and responding to the patient emotions. Dr. Bayak, what what might be your response to that new person sitting in front of you asking that question? If I'm in the inpatient environment, uh, a powerful learning tool that I've used is to start with the quote-unquote social history rather than the history of present illness when you meet a new patient, certainly in consultation. So what that looks like is uh, when I meet a new patient as a palliative care consultant, instead of uh, asking what brought you to the hospital or how is your pain level today, uh, I start by saying, uh, you know, uh, I and the uh, fellow who may be coming with me to do the consultation have spent the last half hour or 45 minutes going through your medical records. And we know a lot about your diagnoses and all the treatments you've been through, but the medical record doesn't tell us very much at all about who you are as a person. So I'd like to spend just a few minutes finding out, you know, about you uh, as a person. I, I don't even know where you grew up. So I start there. Where did you grow up? And when did you leave home? And well, what kind of work have you done uh, throughout your life? And how has that changed? And when did you get married if you've been married? And, oh, I understand you've been married more than once. So tell me about, are you still in touch with your first husband or wife? And we go through this. What do you like to do when you're not working? Uh, it sounds like it takes a lot of time, but it actually doesn't. All I've done is, is do, do a social history and maybe slightly expanded form. I'm going to still chart that social history down below the allergies or the medication list. But I start with it in the interview because it starts our relationship within the context of the person's life, not in the context of their illness or in the context of the complication that has brought them to the hospital, but as a whole person. And, and then after, it usually only takes five or seven minutes, after we get through that, then we go to, you know, uh, what is your understanding of, of your illness at the present time? And we go back through the history of present illness and, and uh, the past medical history of needed and where we're going with the plan of care today. But it changes everything. And I, I say this because not uncommonly the medical residents or the fellows that I get to train are uncomfortable starting there. They are so, they've been so tightly schooled to start with the history of present illness that it, that it takes a lot of reinforcement for them to try it this way. But it's very much as Dr. Patterson was talking about, 
as starting with the patient's story and listening before telling. And it's, it's remarkable how that builds relationship and trust because when people feel heard and understood, you've really become their doctor. <laughs> you know, it's, a shift has happened. Uh, and that, that's been, frankly, transformative in, in my practice. And for the, the learners, the physicians in training who have adopted it, they, they come back and tell me it's, it's been transformative to them as well. Today, we've heard about the approach of whole person care, its insights, its stories, and its impact. The tools mentioned by our guests will be posted with this episode on our website at missiononline.net. Appreciation for our guests and listeners. Thanks, everyone. My name is Kevin Murphy, and this is Ethics Lab. We hope you have enjoyed this edition of the Ethics Lab podcast, exploring the path from better knowledge to practical results in healthcare ethics. Ethics Lab was created by Kevin Murphy and Russell Keithline. Thanks for listening. Join us again. Thank <laughs> you.